If you would grab a Trinity Psalter hymnal and turn to the back to the Heidelberg Catechism, we're going to recite the Heidelberg Catechism together before we look at it. You can do it from memory. If, if it, that works for you, go ahead. They, that's different language, actually. It's true. Um, but, but just so that no one feels embarrassed, I'm going to go ahead and read it. I, actually, as an aside, um, I grew up in a Reformed Church in America congregation, and then I went to a Baptist church, and then to Calvary Chapel, and then to the PCA, then to the Reformed Episcopal Church. And would you know that they all use slightly different language for, like, the Apostles' Creed? And so I always read it because I have a flood of different competing words come into my mind. And if I try to recite it from memory, I know I'm going to break in in old King James English or something. Okay. Let's see. Belgic Confession, Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day number 5. Question number 12. According to God's righteous judgment, we deserve punishment both now and in eternity. How then can we escape this punishment and return to God's favor? God requires that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, the claims of this justice must be paid in full, either by ourselves or by another. Can we make this payment ourselves? Certainly not. Actually, we increase our debt every day. Can another creature, any at all, pay this debt for us? No. To begin with, God will not punish any other creature for what a human is guilty of. Furthermore, no mere creature can bear the weight of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. What kind of mediator and deliverer should we look for then? One who is a true and righteous man, yet more powerful than all creatures. That is, one who is also true God. So Lord's Day number five embraces the first use of the law. Um, you'll recall that when I introduced the Heidelberg Catechism, I pointed out the fact that primarily when it talks about the law of God, it talks about it as our grateful response, the so-called third use of the law. That is the most common use of the law in all of Scripture. But here in Lord's Day number five, we're looking at the first use of the law. Uh, it points to the fact that we need a Savior, and it also points us to the fact of what sort of Savior we need. Last week in Lord's Day number four, we looked at how, left to ourselves, we are all under the just wrath of a holy God, and we saw how justice requires that this terrifying wrath be poured out on rebellious sinners for all eternity. As Michelle pointed out, that is a really sobering truth. And we ought to take it to heart because it's going to help us to realize the urgency of being engaged in the Great Commission, both in sending the gospel around the world, but also in sharing the gospel with our loved ones, our family members, our friends, who have not yet come to profess Christ as their very own Lord and Savior. This week, the Catechism begins to introduce a glimmer of hope. The Lord is convincing us of our guilt in order to prepare us for hearing with great joy the glad tidings of salvation in Jesus Christ. So question 12 asks, according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve punishment both now and in eternity. How then can we escape this punishment 
and return to God's favor. Does that question suggest there is perhaps a way that we can escape this? This is not just bad news, but as sinners we are all doomed. Well, what is the answer? God requires that his justice be satisfied, therefore the claims of this justice must be paid in full, either by ourselves or by another. Now we're going to begin to consider the possible ways that God's justice might be satisfied. The Catechism is going to present two possibilities in order to rule the first one out. Either I have to pay for my guilt myself, you have to pay for your guilt yourself, or that guilt, that justice can be satisfied by another, a substitute, who suffers that punishment in our place. The judge of all the earth will do what is right. He will never compromise his justice. So either we must take, make full payment for our sins ourselves, or someone else has to do so in our place. Those are the only two possibilities. Now, you're all Christians, been in the church for a long time, so you're not surprised that the first uh, item on this list isn't actually a real possibility. Uh, we're not going to be able to make satisfaction ourselves, but it is worth considering this question, number 13, can we make this payment ourselves, both to understand the depth of what Christ has done for us, but also so we can talk um, fluently with our neighbors, because many of our neighbors actually do imagine that, you know, I can make up for my guilt. Or, as I mentioned in the assurance of pardon this morning, yeah, I need God's help. He does his part, I'll do mine. So we have to come to grips with um, the fact that that, in fact, is not possible. Well, the answer the Catechism gives to the question, can we make this payment ourselves, is clear. And it's obviously biblical. Certainly not. Actually, we increase our debt every day. That is, left to ourselves, we not only are not paying off our debt, we're going deeper in debt. You know, the song, right, that says that about shoveling coal. Another day older and deeper in debt. Well, that's actually the truth with God. Every day we sin more in thought, word, and deed. And therefore, if we were left to ourselves, rather than rectifying our previous sins, we're actually heaping up more wrath for the day of wrath. That's the catechism's answer. It's a good answer. If you have questions about that, please ask them. But I also want to ask you, what else? Right? Think about that. What else? Why else would you say, I know that I cannot satisfy the justice of God so that I can be forgiven on my own terms? What do you say? There's a bunch of good answers. Elder Bacon. Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46. Verse 12. Verse 12. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart. You who are far from righteousness, I bring near my righteousness that is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion, for Israel my glory. Yes, so Peter says, just quoting Isaiah, it's not going to be by your righteousness. God's word says that. It's going to be by my righteousness. In fact, you're stubborn of heart. You can go throughout the prophets, and you're going to see a lot of things. So uh, the touch on this very issue, it is common for us in our own day when people behave badly to go, well, yeah, they made a mistake, but they have a good heart. We turn to the prophets again, and it says, no, the heart is corrupt and deceitful above all things. 
right? So we don't have the resources in ourselves to do this. What else? I mean, that's, that's a good answer. But there are other things to think about. Why else do we know that it's not possible for us to pay the full satisfaction for our own sins? This is a tough quiz. You can't just get the right answer or a second right answer. Judy. Well, yeah, God says so. That's correct. And of course, that's what Peter is saying as well. God clearly says so. So that's the end of the story. But I'm asking you, what's underneath that? Why is it not possible? Or maybe we want to think about another way in which God makes clear that we can't do it. What would happen if somehow, this is not God's plan, but if somehow God, from this moment on to the end of your life, would sustain you in perfect personal and perpetual righteousness? Would that make up for the way you lived before? See, actually, many of your non-Christian neighbors think that that would. I was bad, now I'm good, therefore God will forgive me. But you've got to think about this practically. I mean, if you were to go uh, before a judge because you robbed a bank, and, you know, in the modern legal system, it might take a long time for this to actually come to trial, and they let you out on bail, and it's nine months later, you finally appear in court, and, and you're going to plead your case. What would, the, what would the judge think if you said, Your Honor, I haven't robbed the bank in nine months, right? Doesn't that make up for it? Well, oddly enough, many people think that's how it would work with God. If I simply stopped sinning, which, by the way, the Bible makes clear you're not going to do, that actually doesn't make up for anything. Jesus, in one of his parables, points out that if you do everything he calls you to do, you might as well say, I'm just a miserable servant. All I've done was my duty. Um, contrary to Roman Catholic theology, you never do works of supererogation. In Roman Catholic theology, it's possible for you to be so holy that you have leftover merits. They can get dumped into a treasury of merits and given to people that don't have enough. The problem with that is, is you don't have any excess merits, and neither does anyone else, right? Because if you had perfect personal and perpetual obedience from the moment you were conceived, and we don't take into consideration the imputation of Adam's guilt, that would only justify you. And, of course, that's not true. So your good deeds that you do tomorrow do not make up for the sins you did in the past. They're what you're supposed to do all the time. Consider these words from stricken, smitten, and afflicted. This actually helps us to understand the weight of our sins, to think about the fact that we can't do anything about it. This is from the third stanza. If you think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here you see its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed, see who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed, son of man and son of God. Now that's not only the good news that we're going to move forward toward, the fact that we do have a redeemer who bears our sins. It actually shows how serious our guilt is. That in order for me to be forgiven, God himself had to take a true human nature to live the life that I should have lived and to die the death that I should have died. And you'll recall what Jesus prays in Gethsemane. Actually, someone say that. What does Jesus pray in Gethsemane? He's getting ready to die. He knows the burden he's going to bear. He knows that God is about to pour out his wrath 
against the sins of every sinner that has ever committed. And our Lord prays what? Yes. Father, all things are possible for you. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me, the cup of your wrath against the sins of my people. Now, beloved, if you could make up for your sins, Almighty God would not have put his son to death on the cross. It's not possible. Jesus is saying that is the only way. You and I cannot do it. Well, the catechism asks a fairly natural question because I might not be able to do it, but can another creature, any at all, pay this debt for us? And it answers, no. To begin with, God will not punish any other creature for what a human is guilty of. Furthermore, no mere creature can bear the weight of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. That's a great answer, right? Human beings have sinned. Human beings need to bear the punishment for sin. Um, Very, very famous work, Curdeus Homo, Why the God-Man. That's part of its central argument. It's saying it must be a human being because the wages of sin for humans is death. It must be that a human being will bear this penalty. But I ask you once again, why else? Let's explore this together. Why else will God not put your sin away by punishing another creature? Nathan. It's unjust. The other creature is suffering for no good. Well, that's actually a little tricky. Got to push him a bit. He's a seminary student. Don't we have sacrifices in the Old Testament where animals are like put to death as sin offerings, day of atonement, covers over the sins of the people? Isn't God punishing that animal in your place? Nathan says yes. And Michelle would like to follow up on his behalf. I saw you had your hand up. That's intimidating. Oh. That was was a type of a symbol of what Christ would do, but it reminded us of how bloodshed was necessary. Yeah, so it's very important to remember the sacrificial system is a type. Now, it is true the animals suffer because of us, but that actually is because we we naturally think of... um, the federal headship of Adam as being over other human beings. That's what's important to us. But actually, Adam had a federal headship over all of creation. So all of creation groans because of human sin, awaiting for that final day when, out of redemption, and God raises us from the dead and glorifies us, that creation itself will rejoice that has been set free from the bondage that has come into this world by human sin. So animals, in fact, will suffer they do suffer. And in this case, in the sacrificial system, they die, right? Because of our sins. But that doesn't put away your sin, right? Can't do it. As Michelle points out, the sacrificial system was a type, it pointed forward. And so we look at a passage. This is actually a very, very helpful passage to look at. You might want to turn there in your Bibles Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. And, um, If you ever get confused about the sacrificial system, remember, Hebrews is a great place to go. In fact, one of the the, uh, better New Testament commentaries 
uh, that just came out a year or two ago is written on um, Hebrews, was written by an Old Testament scholar who first wrote a commentary on Leviticus. Um, Kleinick, very fine Lutheran scholar. And um, that, that Old Testament background of studying Leviticus and the sacrificial system uh, is important because it shows up in the book of Hebrews, which is saying how much better is Christ, right? Better than the angels, better than the sacrifices, better than the Aaronic priesthood. And what we see here in Hebrews chapter 10 is the Old Testament sacrificial system was types, beginning at verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would have ceased to be offered. Since the worshipers have once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. <clears throat> For in these sacrifices... There is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So going back to what Judy said earlier, um, God says so, that, that, that finishes your, your point. God says it, that finishes it. And then hopefully I believe it. My believing doesn't add to it. God says the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sins. Just remember that. But I want you to see something else in this passage. In the previous verse it says, otherwise they would have ceased to be offered since the worshipers had been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins. Right? But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. The very fact the sacrifices keep being offered shows that we're still sinners. Right? So the sacrificial system was a pointer forward to Christ, but it was actually also a reminder of the fact that we are of ourselves unclean, we are of ourselves guilty, we are of ourselves need, in need of that forgiveness. The sacrificial system reminded the people, your sin has not been put away yet. Now I'm going to say something that may be a little bit complicated, but I want you to get this. I am not saying that the sacrifices were not efficacious. Let me say that again. I am not saying that the sacrifices were not efficacious. In fact, I am going to insist that they are. But they are efficacious because of the sacramental union between the sacrifice and Jesus Christ. God had so ordained the sacraments so that when you receive the sign and the seal by faith, you actually receive the blessings of the reality that they're connected to. And I make that point because I want you to remember that about baptism and the Lord's Supper. Water does not save you. It really doesn't. The Lord's Supper does not cause your sins to be forgiven or bind you to Jesus Christ simply because of the bread and the wine. But by God's ordinance and the grace of the Holy Spirit, when you receive the Lord's Supper by faith, you are actually receiving Jesus Christ. Right? So don't, don't make the, the error. You get, in church history, there's two errors that happen. One is an overly um, realistic reading of the elements so that by the mere fact that you're consuming the wine and the bread in the Lord's Supper, you are in fact eating the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And ordinarily that's for your good, but of course it could also be for your judgment. 
That's an overly realistic view. In the West, many people have jumped to the other extreme and said, look, they're just symbols. But actually, I want you to see that in God's providence and his ordinance and what he reveals in Scripture, he has taken these things that are, in fact, a sign and a seal, and he has united them by his Spirit to the reality so that you really do receive grace when you participate by faith in the sacraments. Right, it's really true. That was true in the Old Testament, too. That's, I, I'm not making this point so that you realize what, what it meant for them. I'm making this point so you realize what it means for us. God really does use his sacraments as means of grace for you. Just like, of course, he uses preaching. Right? Preaching is a means of God's grace. Not a preacher saying words, but the word of God empowered by the Holy Spirit. Right? It really does matter. Michelle. Yeah, it does something. Oh, that, that was the, that was the my, my, my dumbed-down translation. It, does, it makes a difference. It works. Does it, does, the, does it only work going forward because of the death and resurrection of Christ and backward? Like, does the sacrifice of the animals, is it only efficacious because Christ died, or is it efficacious in and of itself? No, it's only because of Christ. Apart from union with Christ, those are just animals. And the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away your sins. It does zero for you apart from its union with Christ. Of course, if it wasn't by God's design to be in union with Christ, um, it would be idolatry, so it would be worse than zero. Yeah. John. It wasn't, it also wasn't any bull and goat. Like, it it had to be brought to the temple. Yeah. It's not like you could just sacrifice a bull out in the field it would be considered a sacrifice to the Lord. So it was, it's like medicine being efficacious. Yeah. It's able to produce the effect that it was built to produce. Yeah. So John's point is they're not just any animals. And I, I, I want to go building on what he's saying. He's, he's actually making this point. It's actually the animals that God himself is selecting. Remember that they are inspected by God's priests who are ordained precisely to offer these animals up to God, right? So these are his design, his location, where you're going to offer the sacrifices, and uh, they're offered up by his priests, right? So this is God establishing a means of grace. That, by the way, is true in the New Covenant. I know there's a bit of a debate about this in the broader evangelical world where we don't spend a lot of time on ecclesiology, but throughout the history of the church, the practice has been... I want to say 99.9999% that the Lord's Supper is supposed to be administered by an ordained elder or minister of Jesus Christ. There's a bit of debate about three office, two office, so can a ruling elder administer the Lord's Supper? Does it have to be an ordained minister or priest or whatever? But it's always been viewed that way, not because of the elder or the minister, but because they represent Christ in his church. It's a sacrament for the church. So you can't go home and break out grape juice and crackers and celebrate the Lord's Supper around your dinner table and receive grace from God, right? That's not God's ordained design for it. It's for the people of God as we gather together in public worship. Yeah. Baptism is a little trickier, so I won't go there. Uh, Oh, come on, I get to duck things occasionally. We'll talk about that many months later from now. Here's another question for you. I've raised this as an illustration before. Um, 
so maybe you'll remember what I said, or maybe you'll have a better idea. But why couldn't it just be another human? Okay, we know that it can't be a human born of ordinary generation, because if you're born by ordinary generation, you're born, you're conceived with original sin. But couldn't God have created a second Adam? You know, the first one he created out of the dust of the ground, created another one out of the dust of the ground, or some other way, because maybe the dust is corrupted. And God sustained that individual to be completely righteous every moment of his life. But he's not God, he's just man. Could that person be the mediator that we need? Ben. Well, I guess it's the fact that it seems like at best he could be the mediator for one person, not the entire human race. Yeah, so ben, Ben's point is he could at best be the mediator for one person, not the entire human race. And he would have to remain under the power of death for all eternity. Remember that the punishment of death is not the punishment of dying. The wages of sin is death, being under the wrath of God, separated from his grace for all eternity. Now, I've used that, and so Ben and I are on the same page here as we're saying this. I'm not saying that he's saying something wrong. This is this illustration I've used. But I want you to also realize that creates two other problems for us. First of all, it's actually unjust. Why is this individual being punished for all eternity? Right? Well, you might say he volunteered. I don't think anyone's going to volunteer for that, actually. But let's suppose for a moment someone does volunteer for that. We have a second problem. Who loves you? Rachel, who loves you? God. Well, not in that scenario. Let me say this. Suppose you owed me 100 bucks, and Elder Bacon gave me $100 and paid off your debt. And I said, you're forgiven. Well, okay, we both love you. But in that illustration, which one of us loves you? Elder Bacon does. It didn't cost me anything. And see, if a mere human being died for your sins, it would not reveal that God loves you. The revelation of God that God loves you comes from God sending his only begotten son. And that the incarnate God said, I love you so much, I'm willing to die for you. Right? So there are real problems with other alternatives to the biblical path. That shouldn't surprise us. God does all things well. His plan is the right one. But it can be helpful to flesh it out just a little bit in our thinking. So we end up here with the conclusion that only one who is both truly man but also fully God can both represent us and also bear the awful punishment of dying for the sins of every person who will ever live and then rise again, as the author of Hebrews says, by the power of an indestructible life, for it is not possible for death to hold him. So you can also think about this in terms of God. I mean, why couldn't God have, have just absorbed the penalty for our sins without having to take to himself a true human nature? Two parts of this answer, anybody. Why could God not have simply absorbed the punishment of our sins without taking to himself a true human nature? You were rescued. I was going to call on one of my very favorite sacks of salt back there, but we're going to let, uh, let you do it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> You're a very nice sack of salt, too. So let your light shine.
Uh, I hope so. Um, what are the two reasons, I'm not going to now say it that way, but there might be more. What are two reasons why God couldn't simply absorb the penalty our sins deserve without becoming a true human being? Why did he have to take to himself a true human nature? That's one. So human beings did it. The, the wages of sin is death. I actually have another part of that. Uh, it's true that we, we had that earlier. But human beings created the sin, so human beings have to pay for it. But let, let's do 1B, because it's related to that. I, I can't think of the, the what can't God do? God, can't die. God cannot die. The wages of sin is death. God cannot pay the penalty, because if God dies, the universe goes out of existence. But Thankfully, God cannot die, right? So he had to become a human being in order to be able to die. What's the other part of it? Ray. Uh, he had to show that he was could be tempted as we are. So he's going to sh- demonstrate his weakness. That's close. It's not the answer, though. Scott, what do you think? Uh, oh, it's bad. He's calling on people without them raising their hands. <laughs> you can do it. <laughs> There's no escaping the professor. That's okay. No answer is fine. I mean, God can't absorb it without. He has to like. He has to punish it. He has to punish it. He's the judge. Absorb it wouldn't be to just toward it. It would be like you say a lot. He doesn't say, "Oh, no big deal." Yeah. We can say, "Oh, no big deal." Yeah. It's not no big deal. Like someone has to die for it. Yeah, that, that, so that, that's totally right. So part of the, so we got a third one here. That's, that wasn't what I was looking for, but that's a good answer. God, in fact, by absorbing it, would in one sense be saying no big deal. And by the way, this is different than you absorbing a punishment. See, if you absorb a punishment in yourself, you are actually suffering. But God is always blissful all the time. So if somehow he could be absorbing this, he would still be entirely blessed in himself. And he'd really be saying no big deal about your sin. What else is necessary for you to be justified apart from your sins being punished? Living a perfect life. You've got to remember both sides of this. Your sins have to be put away, but that only gets you to neutral. You also need to have perfect personal and perpetual righteousness. And Jesus lives the life that you and I should have lived, and he reckons that to your account. Therefore, it was necessary for Jesus to be both God and man to pay the penalty that we deserved. By the way, I use that because I'm trying to catechize you. I, I, I say this over and over again. I don't want you to look for another answer. I want you to remember this. On the cross, God treated Jesus as though he lived your life so that for all eternity he could treat you as though you lived his. That as though you lived his is the reckoning of, of Christ's perfect righteousness to your account. That's a very central issue in theology, and it's one that's gotten lost in 21st century, 20th century as well, North American Christianity. If you talk to almost all your friends about salvation, they will only have the forgiveness of sins. They will not include the imputation of Christ's righteousness. But that's actually really important. Okay. Where are we? 
Well, George Bethune helpfully summarizes Lord's Day 5 under four headings. First, it presents the impossibility of our salvation by our own works. Second, it presents the possibility of our salvation through the righteousness of a sufficient substitute. Third, it makes clear the qualities necessary to a sufficient substitute or mediator for us with God. And fourth, it starts pointing toward the provision of just such a substitute or a mediator in our Lord Jesus Christ as we learn from the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. So we've just begun to discuss how Jesus has to be both fully man and fully God. You can also say truly man or truly God. Both of those are are in fact true. Fully man and fully God in order for him to put away our sins. Any thoughts or questions on Lord's Day number five? And since you have like six minutes, you can also ask questions about post-millennialism, a Christian view of education, Anything at all? Yes, hope. Boy, I put myself out there. I'm just curious about the wording of we increase our debt every day because doesn't that imply that Christ would have to increase his reconciliation for that? Oh, no, that's a great question. So Hope's question is, is if we increase our debt every day, does that mean that Christ is increasing his uh, reconciliation or his satisfaction for our sins every day? The catechism question is speaking to us as sinners not as redeemed sinners. So human beings left to ourselves are increasing our debt every day. When Jesus died for your sins on the cross, he died for all of them, including the sins you haven't committed yet. Right? So it's completely finished. By the way, I don't like the language. Your pastor does tangents. I'm riddled with ADD. Um, I don't like the language about infinite that gets thrown in here a lot. It's very common. It's understandable why we'd want to go there to say you sin against a perfectly holy God, therefore you would have an infinite debt, and Christ pays an infinite penalty. And I actually don't like that for two reasons. One is, being finite, I can't get my mind wrapped around it. I don't even know what infinite is. I just know I don't get it, right? It's, it's too big for me. And if that's what's true, that's fine. But actually, the implication may be that you're Guilt, while it's humongous, beyond your ability to count, is in fact finite. There's a specific amount of guilt for all the people who are ever going to be redeemed, and Jesus paid that on the cross. Now, I don't want to push this too hard on anybody, right? Because we're, we're in areas that are hard for our minds to get wrapped around. I mean, I certainly don't fully grasp what it means for Jesus to be fully God, fully man, two distinct natures in one person. I just know it's true. But, but I do want to encourage you to be a little, little careful about it sounds good to use terms like an infinite debt and an infinite sacrifice and so on, but maybe it's dangerous. Are you comfortable with saying our sins are infinitely offensive to God? Do you want more of a qualitative not that, not that we have Yeah, so the question is, is your sin infinitely uh, offensive? And I I would not say that, but when we use language like that, what we're using is infinite as an adjective, and that we we use lots of words this way, like completely, fully, absolutely. Um, The the problem is, is infinite is expanding size. 
right? So I want to say God is so holy that he cannot look on the slightest bit of any sin you've ever had without judging it. It is totally reprehensible to God, but I prefer totally to infinitely. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I think the reason that is in my mind is because I think it is Edwards. It is Edwards. The, the reason why it's, it's just for God to put it, you know, pun, infinitely punish sin is because he is infinitely holy. Yeah. And the sin is infinitely offensive. And so, and, you know, infinite punishment. Here's the point, though, actually. Um, Edwards does say this, and he's very smart. So if you follow Edwards instead of me, that's a perfectly good, reasonable thing to do. However, it does turn out that we use the language of infinite punishment, and it never actually takes place. It's not a line, it's a ray. It's going in one direction. So the accumulated punishment of people in hell is in fact always finite, it just keeps getting bigger. So if what we mean is it never ends by using infinite, I agree. But I would also say that we have pretty good reason, we're not told a lot about eternity, we have pretty good reason to believe that, in fact, people in hell, because they never repent, they're not giving glory to God, they're, in fact, continuing to sin, so they're actually continuing to add to their guilt. Right? But, but, but what we're actually saying, though, is not they're receiving an infinite amount of punishment here, we're saying that as they're punished, there's a finite amount of punishment that keeps getting bigger and bigger. You're looking at me like I'm crazy, which is fine. You're a physicist. I'm a, I'm a theologian. I, I, um, you, you may be correct about that. Yes? Doesn't that go to limited atonement? Because if Christ was infinitely punished on the cross, he, he was overpunished. Yes, yeah, so the, the question, of course, is, is if he's infinitely punished on the cross, he's overpunished. This is my concern, in part, if, in fact, we create finite amounts of guilt. But the way Edwards gets around that is to say that because you're sinning against an infinitely perfect God, your guilt is actually infinite. Um, let me throw out one other reason that I have a problem with that. Jesus actually makes clear um, that to whom much is given, much is required, and those who sin more severely are going to get punished more severely. Now, if we start using the term infinite, there can't be any degrees. In infinity does not have degrees, right? So it therefore suggests that there are um, differences in the finite amount of guilt that everyone achieves, I mean, that everyone accumulates in this life. And Jesus warns people about keeping up wrath against the day of wrath. Boy, did I go down a rabbit trail there. Uh, Silas, would you pray?